0: To yourself. Be you and lead with gravitas, the hallmark of authentic leadership. Let's dive in. Have you ever thought about what it would take to practice authentic leadership in a traditional OEM auto company? Specifically, General Motors. How do you thrive? as an authentic leader at General Motors. Not just survive, thrive. Today, you'll meet a man who knows exactly how to do that. He's been practicing authentic leadership his entire career. And he is a self-confessed servant leader. And he has built a raving fan culture that all leaders want. Meet Mark Boll. Mark is a senior level executive currently operating in the EV space with GM, but a deep history in GM global financial operations. He has a tremendous wealth of experience and cultural knowledge, living and working in the US, in Europe, in Latin America and Asia. And he believes in bringing your whole self to work. He gets it when it comes to cognitive diversity and he will share with us exactly how he encourages and creates an inclusive collaborative environment he knows what it takes to make people feel safe if we want to get ideas from people and we want them to bring everything they have to work this is the kind of leadership that we need more of In his words, it's not the number of people that I lead, it's the number of people that I impact, and he's doing it. Mark, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Jan, thank you for having me, and and thank you for what you do. The positive impact you have on a lot of people is fantastic, so thanks for everything.
0: Well, thank you, and what a great way to intro. You talk about impact on people. Boy, you know, it's not very often I come across such a large number of people that work in an organization that rave about their boss. But you have a following. You most certainly do, which is why I had to have you on this podcast. You are indeed an authentic leader. I know that for a fact from the people that work for you. And I did not expect that the guy at the top of GM Financial would be that guy. I know, I know, I was attaching labels and you shouldn't do that. But hey, I got it wrong again. I actually got it wrong again. I get it wrong a couple, you know, quite a few times, actually. Um, so here you are, you're an authentic leader. Our listeners want to know what that means to you. But I want to start from the very beginning. So Mark Bold, what is your story?
1: Uh, those are very kind words for an introduction, Jan. So thank you again for that. Fantastic. Um, I'd like to know who that following is, because I probably should pay him off. But...
0: No, I will never tell. Just so you know, I will never, ever tell.
1: <laughs> but it's great you've heard. And um, so who am I and what's my story? I guess just first of all, in, in the line of introduction that you gave me, I, I do view myself as a servant leader. Uh, I love purpose. I love culture. And I thrive on change. And so I guess... Other people that I've surrounded myself with over these years uh, feel the same way, and and I think I've energized and empowered some of them. That's where where we've gotten to. But what's my story? We'll begin at the beginning. So, I grew up in a in a small farming community here in the state of Michigan. About sixty people graduated with me in high school. I think about ten of us went to college, and probably half of us graduated. So, it was a different place where than where I am now. But you know, learned a lot while I was there. And actually, I was. pushed by two very entrepreneurial and driven parents, um, but in a loving way and had all the support that I needed. But one thing that they taught me from the beginning was respect and thinking about others and making sure I understood how it was impacting other people's lives and that I was taking their feelings into consideration. And that's something that has served me forever and ever and ever. So thank you, mom and dad. Um, after leaving that small town, I decided to do something a little different. So I went to a big college, which was Michigan State, uh, 40,000 people. So that was kind of an eye-opening experience for me, but it did okay. I learned an awful lot, got exposed to some new things, came back and uh, took my first job with General Motors, which now has has been a thirty six year career, which is phenomenal. but along the way i've I've been given wonderful opportunities and and, and opportunities to learn. But that first job, um, you know big city of Detroit, which was new for me in the basement of the old general Motors building and After a year of kind of learning and experiencing that new way, I decided I needed something more. So I applied for my master's. Um, For some reason, I I always wanted to go to University of Chicago because I was a finance guy and I always wanted to be a bond trader on Wall Street, which is so far from my personality and where I've ended up is amazing. But thankfully, Chicago uh, deferred me for a year. So I went to my second choice, which was a school on the East Coast. And so I spent a couple of years out in Boston and got my MBA, came back. Um, Worked for General Motors and got married, which was an important thing in my life, obviously, as I am a husband and a father first and a worker second. Um, But again, worked for a year here in the city of Detroit and once again decided it was time to seek something new. I needed some more learnings and some more challenges. And so um, raised my hand for an overseas job, actually, and uh, got a job in Belgium, of all places. Um, I remember my father asking me when I told him I was going to work in Belgium. He thought it was in the Middle East and he was a little concerned. But um, the really interesting thing about that job opportunity is I was actually third choice. And so uh, there were two other people that were in line ahead of me, uh, but they decided in the end they didn't want the job. And it took my wife and I about two minutes to decide we were going to go and and experience this new challenge in Europe. So we lived for three years in Belgium Uh, back in the early 90s no internet, no mobile phones. You talk about isolation from your friends and family, that was it. But uh, we enjoyed our three years there. Actually, both of our children were born in Belgium, which was fantastic. And then uh, we headed back to the United States and spent four years uh, back in the Detroit area. But I spent most of my time working in Latin America. So I'd had the U.S. experience. I'd had the European experience. It was time for something, again, completely new. I spent my time down there. And at the end of four years, decided, again, we needed another adventure. And so raised my hand and my wife and I and my, our new young family headed to the UK, um, had never been there before, took a new job there in a new office with a bunch of new people, um, focused on, on market, new markets and strategic initiatives. So a lot of mergers and acquisitions, a lot of partnerships, a lot of new country entries. So some really stimulating work that taught me a lot of different things. But again, after three years there, decided it was time once again to do something new. Are you, are you noticing a theme here? Um, every few years. I'm
0: I'm getting it. (laughs) I'm
1: raising my hand um, again with the partnership of my wife and and your spouse, which you need all the way. Um, But we ended up in Australia. And so uh, GM Financial at the time had just opened up a bunch of new businesses in Asia Pacific and they needed someone to run that region. And so we went down to Australia, which is a fantastic place to live and raise your family. Um, Unfortunately, I spent most of my time on a plane because the Asia Pacific region is so large. And we had just started working in China. And what was really cool at that time is China had just opened up to the West and it was an opportunity to really do some new things. And we set up a joint venture there, which even today is one of the most successful finance companies in in all of China. So that was great. Um, Unfortunately, that only lasted about 18 months. So it was a little short. And uh, we moved back to the UK for another opportunity. And um, I was running our European operations at the time, which is about 20 countries. And while I was there, we spent another three years in London. Um, I was promoted to president of international operations. And uh, we came back in the mid 2000s to the United States. And so after about 12 years of being overseas, um, and really my kids spending most of their life outside of the United States, we made the difficult decision to come back to the U.S. and talk about reverse culture shock. Oh, my goodness. Um, But we settled in. We've been there ever since. And um, Again, haven't moved again since then, but looking for additional challenges a few years ago raised my hand once again. In addition to my president of I.O. role, I took on chief administrative officer roles where I had global HR, global IT, global communications and risk reporting to me, and we transformed them into a global organization versus regional business units. And so a lot of different opportunities. And this year, to end the story, of course, this isn't ending the story, um, but I decided I want to try something else. So... I left my team of 3,000 uh, employees at GM Financial and actually went to work at the GM parent company. So I'm still part of General Motors, but in a really new area focused on EVs, batteries, energy services. And as of May and June, I took that role, uh, became a team of one. Um, so I didn't have to influence anyone. Um, but now we've built a team to 22 and we're on our way to 55. And so another new challenge ahead of me, which is fantastic. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting walking through that story, Jan, because I don't do it very often. But at the end of the day, as I talk about the different places and the different jobs, people's faces uh, pop through my brain at 100 miles an hour. And you realize you are just, you know, a combination of all the people you've come across and the teams that you've built and the relationships that you've that you've made. And it really is about the people at the end of the day. That's what that's what matters for you. And that's what matters for them.
0: So that's yeah, my that's story. <laughs> no, that's right. That's a great story and a lot of travel. You learned a lot, I'm sure, by living in different cultures. You learned to assimilate into those cultures. And I think you also, I would imagine that it would also strengthen your belief in cognitive thought and cognitive diversity.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's amazing to be exposed um, to different cultures and different people and realizing for a moment that you're an outsider. And I think many of us that that go through life and reflect it and realize we have unconscious biases around diversity and inclusion, by us being exposed where we were actually the outsider in a number of different scenarios where I was the odd one out, you suddenly get the ability to experience what that feels like. And until you understand what that feels like, sometimes it's hard to think about, you know, other excluded groups uh, across the globe. And I know I used to very often get in front front of, of, of our organization and preach about bringing your whole self to work, which I think you should, right? And I think there's value in that. But by having those early experiences, I realized it was foolish to think that everyone was bringing their full selves to work, right? Because they were uncomfortable, because a safe environment wasn't created, because it was something they were holding back on. And so again, through all that international travel and, and by being an outsider for a little bit, I think it gave me a bit of an insight that most people don't have in thinking about what is going through that person's brain that is a little bit on the outside. And it, it really has helped me, absolutely. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's a very interesting perspective. You talked about creating a safe environment. We know that psychological safety is absolutely positively required if you want people to bring everything they've got into the workplace and feel challenged and enjoy what they do. And it's it's needed for innovation. We talk about innovation all day long. You can't have innovation if you have fear in the workplace. So psychological safety is is the foundation of where we need to take the workforce into the future. But Mark, how on earth do you create that?
1: You connect with the individual. You know, it's, it's, you have to, and I've learned, I've done a lot of volunteer work in my life, You know, I always wonder, we get a group of people and you go to a homeless shelter. And for two hours while you're at that shelter, anyone will do anything. And they're all smiling and they're working as a team and they're patting each other on the back. Um, You know, you're creating this common purpose about something that's bigger than yourself and you're taking the time to understand what's important to the individual. And I always wondered how to translate that to work, right? And you translate that to work by understanding that person as an individual and understanding what's important to them. And if you can find something that's important to them and to you and to others, you create this internal community within your workforce, which is, you know, something that just isn't possible. And and, and as a part of that, it creates this safe environment that you're talking about. And so until you really start to get to know each other as individuals, until you really start to care about each other as individuals, this safe environment is hard to create. Um, you know, this new team that I'm building, we're talking a lot about trust, right? And, and how do you build that foundational trust? And I've had a couple of employees come to me and say, hey, how do I do that? And again, it's there's no magic five rules or there's no three things you have to do. It's really like, do you know the person across the table from you? Have you asked them what is important to them? Have you listened to them? Have you talked about something outside of work? Have you connected with them on a personal level? And do you care about them or not? And if you can do that things and you show that caring and you show that vulnerability, which is something very new in the workforce, too, you create that safe environment that otherwise doesn't exist. And boy, when I joined the workforce in 1985, that didn't exist.
0: <laughs> no, it certainly doesn't exist in what we, we know as the traditional automotive culture. I mean, I you're... You were with GM Financial, which I, I tend to think of as maybe, maybe you have a little bit different culture for GM than traditional auto, but it's still, it's still GM. How, how on earth were you able to not only survive, but thrive being the authentic leader that you are believing what you believe in? Uh, I mean, of course now GM is, is different. GM is making all, all kinds of changes, but back in the day, how, did, how were you able to, to do that, to be yourself in, in a culture and environment that was perhaps dictating you were supposed to lead a different way?
1: Yeah, and you know what, Janet, right? it was hard, right? It's hard for everybody. Um, you, you know, in the old days, you just went in, you put your head down, you did what your boss you know, told you to do, and you handed in your assignment at the end of the day. And I think pretty early on, which also drove me to look for other opportunities, I knew that's not just what I wanted. And so I was looking for opportunities where I could impact something. Um, You know, could I go to a new country? Um, Could I learn something new? And then impacting something became impacting someone. And then it all boiled down to at the end of the day, it's not the number of people that I lead. It's the number of people that you impact. And so I think through that learning process, I I went through a little bit of self-awareness that a lot of people don't actually have. (laughs) And then you push that into group awareness. And again, how am I impacting someone today? How am I helping myself get better, but also helping someone else get better? And again, that resonates with people on a very personal level. And so you see it work once, you do it again, right? You keep building that same muscle over and over again, and it helps. And so I think that was something that helped me. I kept putting myself in situations where I could make a difference. And there's a lot of risk with that, right? But, you know, I've had many people tell me that you don't grow if you're comfortable, right? You got to have a little bit of discomfort. And so I guess pushing myself into those situations kind of helped along the way.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. It is a muscle that you build, right? Uh, Being an authentic leader, I didn't even know what the term was, you know, a few years ago, right? But... uh It's, you have to, you have to try, you put yourself out there just a little bit at a time and it is like a muscle. It gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And I think that's what um, some leaders miss out on sometimes. You know, you've got to have the courage and the guts to try something, try something, anything, just try something. I was at a conference uh, yesterday and Daniel Pink, the author, was the speaker and his message was was very much the same right it was just 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 try just do something take an action don't live with regret people very rarely regret taking action they most definitely regret inaction so you know could you make a mistake yes but be okay with that it's all okay with that and we have to drive this culture where it's okay to fail and uh, I know that when you've got this psychological safety, which is an environment and a culture that, that you drive within any organization and team that you're part of, so creating that culture that's just ripe for innovation, how do you how do you do that? How do you how do you encourage people to step out there and take a risk?
1: That is a fanta- that's a fantastic question, and you know the. Um the buzzword now is to learn from failures, right? It's only a failure if you didn't learn from it. Um, if you fail and you learn from it, it's not a failure, but organizationally, it's hard to create that environment at times, even though we talk about it. And so what the employees around you, they need to see you fail, right? They need to hear your personal stories about where you did fail and how it didn't end your life and and maybe how it took a path into a area that you weren't going to go before. And you have to be serious about it. Again, you can't just say the words. Um, You don't specifically set your team up for failure so you can show by example that it's okay to fail. But you know what? You get there once again by stretching. Um, I've learned how amazing it is to put the right people around you and empower them. And what I've learned about that, and that's where I'm going with this, is saying the yes and versus the no but. And so by just opening the door and constantly saying yes to your team you kind of lead them down this path of joint risk. And again, you don't leave them alone. It's, it's group accountability. I am there with you. You know, let's walk this path together. Let's fail together. And you find a good example where it's not high risk maybe to do it, but you fail together. And then you talk about it. And then you talk about it again. And then you talk about it a third time. And again, you keep reinforcing that it's okay. But people don't really feel safe until they actually see it happen. And, and again, storytelling is important. But you actually need to find an example and walk that path together with your employees before they really believe you that it's okay to fail and and you will allow that to happen.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. And you mentioned storytelling, right? Storytelling and purpose go hand in hand. And I find that I found this in my corporate role, and I know a lot of leaders struggle with this too. They're so into the weeds because they feel they have to be. You know, maybe there's so many crises going on. There's always a crisis, particularly in automotive. There's (laughs) always some crisis somewhere, right? I mean, okay, I will admit that there's, there's a lot of pressure going on right now in the world with all the supply chain issues. But how... As a leader, you have to keep your team you have to keep their heads up and looking forward and and keep them connected to that purpose. But it's hard when you 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 feel like you have to be in the weeds. And and I found that I was judged by my peers by how far down in the weeds I actually was, mm. which was another thing I had to, I had to fight. What advice would you give leaders? out there in connecting their teams to purpose and keeping their finger on the pulse and and being in the weeds as much as they should be or need to be.
1: Yeah, and just on in the weeds first, because it's important, you know, I mentor a number of people and the, the, the thing that comes up all the time is you have new leaders who want to continue to do everything themselves, right? Because they've been successful. And you know darn well, if you're sitting next to somebody and there's a job to be done and you're a financial analyst and they're not doing it, you just grab the piece of paper and you do it. And that's how you've been successful. So we're back to working that muscle over and over again. If I do this all myself, I can trust myself and I can get it done. And so trying to train people, not train, talk to people about how do you let go and how do you actually develop and rely on others. And the one thing that I've learned is I've been successful in my career, but Boy, it has not been just me, and I couldn't have done anything alone. And convincing those new leaders that you can't do anything by yourself, you can to a point in your career, but you're just going to fail. And you really have to, again, fall back to these people relationships and relying on others and creating this joint purpose. And so where I'm going with purpose, if you want that person sitting next to you to actually help you get something done, you need to create a joint purpose with them, a joint goal with them, a going objective with them that matters to them as an individual. And so thinking through these statements about how I can connect the dots for others around me so they can see my vision, so it makes real sense to them, and so it creates an emotional commitment or an emotional bond that they want to help me reach the same purpose. So they're no longer doing this for Mark. They're doing it for themselves. And that's the trick, right? If you can get people to do things for themselves that help you further your own, this is not mean or evil, right? This is joint objectives. This is building purpose, building those guide rails. That you can walk along to that same purpose statement. And getting that done and getting people on the bus and moving in the same direction is just the right thing to do. And so, again, it's thinking about them, not thinking about yourself. What's important to them? How do I get them excited about reaching a goal I want to get to? It's not about Mark. What do they want to do? Let's do it together. And so I don't know if that makes sense, but that's how I think about that for sure.
0: Yeah. No, it does. It does. And I think there's a bit of a a leap of faith here too. When you're really focused on purpose and you connect people to purpose, if they really get it and really understand it, understand their role and and how they connect to it, then you don't have to monitor or feel like you have to control their actions or decision-making because the purpose will drive that. They'll know what decisions to make in line with that purpose. So if you spend more time on purpose and less time on making sure on the how on how things are done and, you know, what are people doing and, and empower people to do the right thing, then you can spend less time on the tasks and being in the weeds and more time where you need to be spending your time, which is leading, leading through purpose.
1: Yeah. And I used this term before, people want guide rails because they want to make sure they're going in the right direction, but they don't want you either pushing them from behind or pulling them from the front, Right. And so purpose is those guide rails. It's something that's emotional enough, clear enough that they understand and they want to go forward with, but it's not so tight in managing them on a day-to-day tactical basis that they feel suffocated. And so, Jan, you talked before about innovation and creativity. It's the same thing. Lining up the purpose gives those guide rails, but it doesn't squeeze people too tightly. They can bump back and forth, and so it allows them to be a little bit creative, a little bit innovative, and they're actually moving forward on the path. And then below the purpose is these actually common objectives. So it's not just purpose. You do have to be a little more specific about common objectives. So, again, we know we're walking to the same path or the same we're walking to the same objective at the end of the path. So it's a combination of the purpose plus the objectives, plus again, giving them wiggle room to learn and to be creative and innovative versus pushing or pulling and being okay, right? That makes people nervous as a leader, right? Because you want to make sure everything's right. And so this doesn't happen overnight. Not only are you developing them and helping them to learn about how to be better employees, all of that stuff helps develop you as a better leader. And the more you give up, Right? It's very nervous and you got to worry about it. But the more it works, the better you feel. And then it's once again working that muscle over and over again to build it and to allow you to have the confidence, the self confidence, and the self awareness and the group awareness to allow that to happen.
0: Yes, there it is. That's it. I want to take you back to diversity for a second. I know that you don't just talk about diversity, I know that you know how to take action. With diversity, and I've seen you as uh, an ambassador for the ERG, the Employee Resource Groups, uh, within your um, last organization, within Gem Financial. And I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's nothing new. I think you've been doing that for a, a long time. So tell me a little bit about the leadership thought process behind diversity and about taking action because you take action you don't just talk you don't give it to somebody else you do it so share with our audience what's going on in your head and and how you do that
1: yeah and i think just to start at the top i mean diversity creates so much value in so many ways uh, we talk about creativity and innovation and you can't have that unless you have diversity of thought and you know you can and again, this is how our world has changed, but it's changed for a better way. It used to get, you, you got the group of the same looking people in a room together that had the same experience because what did you want to do? You wanted to build consensus because consensus was the way to get things done. And that's how our brains worked. When, you know, as I experienced really different cultures in different countries, um, I was exposed to so many different thought processes and ideas. And again, at first it became clutter. And it was like, I don't like this. I don't like different things. I like things that I'm used to. But over time, then, I would take some of those ideas or different things that I heard from these different cultures, these different people I met, could be different gender, could be different nationality, whatever. It started to click with me. This was actually making me a better person and a smarter person because suddenly, instead of trying to build consensus, I had 73 different options I could choose from because I was listening and hearing different people say different things. And so the value of getting different ideas on a table is just unbelievable. And you talk about a resilient organization, you can't be resilient unless you have a diversity of thought. Um, so what do you do? So you get a group of people in the room that don't look like you, don't sound like you, don't have the same experience for, as you do, and you listen to their stories and you ask them, are you bringing your whole self to work? And you will hear if you've created that safe environment that no, they don't and no, they aren't. Uh, they are not bringing their whole self to work. And so I'm thinking, holy smokes, I'm only getting 50% of all of these people. If I could get a hundred percent of their different ideas and different culture and different experiences and different backgrounds and different personalities, how powerful would that be? And so again, what do you do in that room? You don't, you don't tell them what you're going to do. You ask them what you should do. And so, you know, how can I get you to come to the work and feel more comfortable? How can I get you to the work and bring more ideas? And a wonderful example, um, At GM Financial was we did that and we got those people in a room and we created this this group called the Women's Inspiration Network, which was more gender focused than the broader diversity focus, but still it's diversity. Right. And to hear those individuals sit around the table and to tell their personal stories and feel safe um, about why they hadn't brought their host selves to work, realized that we needed an employee resource group that would serve their needs and allow them to speak more freely and create an environment um, that would not only help themselves, but it would help me, but it would help the company. And it was, again, around the yes and and not no but. It was like, okay, these are great ideas. I will support you in any way I can because I am the leader. I can help make the decisions. I can give you money. I can do it. But you need to do it. You need to own it. You need to tell me what to do because I'm sorry, I don't have all the answers in this area. Which is a leader, when you say that, you can look around their own people are going, oh my gosh, we thought Mark was really smart. Yeah. And then, But, you know, it, again, it opens up a level of vulnerability and personal relationship that you wouldn't have established before. And these people realized I was serious. We were serious. And so, okay, Mark, here's your laundry list of seven things we think we need to do. And you know what? We did them. And that was so powerful. And from that, you know, you opened up other more diverse discussions. Well, let's have a different employee research group. Let's do, let's do something different. Those, those same list of seven things could be done for different people in different areas. But it was so powerful by having that vulnerable and open discussion, asking them what they needed, listening to what they wanted, and then make it happen and be a part of it. And then get up in front of the broader organization at every chance you have and say how wonderful this experience was and how important it was and how you are committed to it. And again, you talk about taking a risk, it's just, again, it's it's about taking part of the risk, but those people will not believe you're committed until they see you do that. And once they know you're committed, again, that flywheel starts turning and those ideas start coming out and that safe environment is created. And I hear stories I've never heard before. It's like, oh my gosh. And it's really simple. It's just listening to people and, and letting them talk and supporting them in ways they need to be supported. So there's not a magic pill.
0: I think often we overthink these uh, approaches to leadership, right? We think with diversity, oh my gosh, you know, where do we even start? What does it mean? I I I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And the answer is just as you articulated, just ask. Ask people. Show your vulnerability, put yourself out there a bit and just ask. What do you think we should do as a team, as a function, as a company? and follow the lead of the people on your team and support them
1: and empower them i you know through that situation too by saying okay this is a wonderful list of things to do we'll do them together i saw people who never had leadership roles before but again back to our previous discussion it created a new purpose for them and so you talk about employee development they suddenly really cared about something that was important to them and also important for the company and it's harnessing that power was amazing. And so I saw people who had just, you know, come to work every day and maybe sat at their desk and did a great job, but they did nothing more than that. Suddenly they were becoming leaders within the CRG. And so you talk about employee development. Oh my gosh, it was fantastic.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that. Let's talk about the pandemic, Mark. What did you learn from the pandemic? Let's. What did you learn about yourself from the pandemic?
1: Yeah, the... Um, You know, I learned, which I knew, I guess, so this maybe isn't a learning. Whenever there's a crisis, we all tend to do okay because we coalesce around the crisis and we just get stuff done and we stay focused. I think, um, and, and, you know, because of my international roles, too, I had led teams that were remote. And so that wasn't as new for me. Um, What I did learn, though, was how important, again, this personal connection, which was easy when you were at work, and you were walking down the hall to go get lunch or going to the bathroom, you would stop and you'd say hi to somebody and you'd chat. Um, and so I took all of that for granted, that personal connection that you had. And I guess one of the things I learned was how important it was to actually have those types of discussions while you're sitting at home. Because, you know, again, we all got onto these Zoom calls and we're going 100 miles an hour and we're going from one to the other. And those kind of conversations and interaction. Um, was not happening and it was people were emotionally impacted including myself I mean i I didn't have that that personal discussion which kind of gave me my internal energy every day and so I learned that I needed that I learned that employees around me needed that so I picked up the ball a little bit with more hey let's at the beginning of each call let's just talk hey, how's everybody doing today what's the story about your dog you know barking on the last call or hey how are your kids doing at school and so it was almost Learning to be more intentional and deliberate about those personal connections that came more naturally when we were in the workforce. And so that was a learning. Um, The other thing I think I would throw out there that I think organizationally I leveraged (laughs) was many, many, many people are afraid of change and they don't think they can handle change. And oh my gosh, we handled change through the pandemic because we worked from home and we were remote and we still were successful and everything's great. And so I now stand up in front of people and say, hey, all of you people who thought you were afraid of change and couldn't manage it or all those people who didn't think you could experiment because experimentation is so important in that failure and learning. My gosh, the last two years were so much change and so much experimentation and we survived and we didn't just survive, we thrived. So again, think about those new things for yourself as an individual, but also for us as a company. They are real lessons that we should have learned and continue to learn through this pandemic, we can thrive and change. We can look for opportunities when crisis hits. And so there's a lot, the pandemic is bad, um, but there are a lot of good things that we can all take from it personally and professionally for sure.
0: Oh, so you really, yeah, you you saw a way to turn that into a major positive.
1: Absolutely, because so many times when you talk about back to our discussion, well, we can't fail, we can't experiment. You just did it for two years and you survived and we won. This is cool. Let's do it again. So uh, it, it's it's a good example. It's a bad example because it happened. But it's, you know again, you always look for opportunities in the dark corners, and because a lot of people tend to shy away from the dark corners. If you're willing to walk into the dark corner, you can find some pretty good opportunities.
0: Mm, yeah, I like that. Talking about change, Gen Z wants a completely different workplace than perhaps the workplace you and I grew up in. What are you doing to attract Gen Z?
1: You know, and it's um, it's interesting. My new space, um, we're finding that purpose matters even more. And so I talked to you about, you know, at GM, we're working in this area of, you know, batteries and sustainability and energy services. And so building a purpose statement that is about creating a better, you know, world long-term for us, for not only for the organization, but for everyone really is powerful for for those individuals. And so, Many um, times I'm finding myself on an interview with with younger empl- potential employees and instead of talking about what's your experience or so they want to know what the job's like or what is the office like, they want to talk purpose. And so being able to connect with with GM's goals of zero, 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 which is all around sustainability and again, making the world a better place is extremely powerful message and it matters. Um, the second thing is, is is flexibility and work-life balance. And because we are still working in a hybrid model, um, due to the pandemic, people are very accepting of that. And we've, we've changed our mindset that not everyone has to be in Detroit or Austin or California, the team that I'm hiring, we are all over the place. Um, and again, that's, that's scary to a lot of people, but it's extremely powerful because you're creating a work-life balance for them, but you're also finding the best talent regardless of where it is. Right. Right. And so, especially in the area that I'm in now, we really have to poke around in different parts of the u s and the world and find people that have talent that we're looking for, and having that flexibility um is good for us, and I think it's good for the younger employees too and so it's it's working out, but it takes work I mean we all have to continue to adapt right
0: yeah, yeah, no it does it takes it takes work, and I see a lot of discussion and a lot of um <clears throat> white papers and uh publications recently about the employer-employee model changing. We are moving into the gig economy. You know, I you could argue I'm a gig worker, right, because I, I work for many different companies. And I, I think I, I see Gen Z really embracing that model. And I think from the employer standpoint, it means you can pluck the skill set that you need for a specific project and have that skill set only when you need it. So you don't have to bring everybody on board as an employee. Um, how do you how do you see some of the challenges with the gig economy moving forward? Yeah,
1: I think first the positive side is just what you said. I think some of the the younger employees or potential employees or contract workers are willing to take a little bit more risk. And yeah, I'll come in and do a project with you, but I don't want to work for you long term. And again, historically, employers maybe have struggled a little bit with that. Um, so, that's actually a good opportunity for both sides it's good for the employee themselves they get to work on what they want what they're passionate about and we get to bring in experts that maybe we only need for a project and maybe we don't need them long term and so it's it is a struggle because again it's a different model and we all whenever there's a new model thrown at us we we look around for our pieces of paper well when did I do that last and what did I do and how did I work it out and so the, the there's a lot of opportunity with the gig economy as you mentioned but it's, it's really people getting comfortable with how do I make this work and how do I, how do I feel confident about that? And I don't think we're there yet, but it is also focusing more on project-based type work. Um, you know, you talk about agile IT now and everything's being done in an agile way and we get into these scrum teams and we work together. Um, sometimes, again, that makes people nervous because, hey, we're just throwing people in a, wor- in a room and they, they're focused on a problem and they have to solve it. What are they going to do tomorrow? What are they going to do next week? But actually the gig economy allows you to do that again bringing these people that maybe have expertise in a very specific item they only want to work on it because it's what matters to them you throw them in a room for three months and if you can put some structure and governance around that you will get more output than finding an employee that's been working with you for 10 years on something else and you want to drag them into this project that they're not really interested in and so we're all learning in this space too but again i think there's opportunity there
0: yeah I, I do too, but it is gonna take a leader who's very comfortable in their own skin to be able to to manage and lead through that. Um, but it's coming, you know, it's it's here and there's gonna be more of it. So I wanna that's why this is on the agenda for all my podcast guests, because I wanna bring more attention to it, more exposure to it. Let's talk about, you know, fears and hopes and fears and um we'll that we'll keep moving the item forward.
1: No, and it's interesting you mentioned we we all have worked for anxious leaders. <laughs> and uh, that's not always the easiest thing to do. And so I always say to my kids who now are working age that hey, if, if you have a good leader or a good boss, be happy and leverage everything you can because it doesn't happen that much. Um, and so as you said, a leader has to be comfortable with all of this change. But I would say a large percentage of of leaders, you know, across the globe are not comfortable with the change that we're facing now, which creates anxious leadership, which is not really better for the broader team. And so you have to be focused on that too.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, authentic leadership, I've defined the hallmark of authentic leadership as gravitas. Mark, what is gravitas to you?
1: Yeah. And it's too big of a word for me to understand, Chan, because I have that, you know, small community background, but, um, the, um, you know, I think it's, we, we've talked about it a little bit. It's really getting better every day, um, but not getting better every day yourself, but actually helping others get better every day. And you know, what's we talk about leaders and how they think differently. Um, I've actually talked with leaders before where I said, Hey, my mantra is I want to get better every day. And they were like, well, that means something's wrong. It means you're not good enough. It means you're challenging me because you think I'm doing something wrong if you're asking me to get better. And I said, no, we can all get better every day. And so I think, again, not only by doing it for yourself, but making sure you're doing it for others um, is extremely important. And then to me, gravitas, too, is people being able to trust you and just know you're going to do the right thing. Um, I think you used a quote in one of your 21 days of authentic leadership, and I can't remember it exactly, but it's not doing the thing that's fun and easy, but it's actually doing the thing that's right and creating a level of integrity that people can trust. You know, we get back to creating the safe environment, which then creates innovation, which then creates creativity, which then generates results, which then generates success. You can't do any of that unless you have the foundational trust and the trust is built on the integrity that they feel you have as a leader. And so for me, a lot of the gravitas has to surround this this feeling of integrity and comfort and self-awareness that we talked about already.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you're absolutely right. Looking back, let's say, at 25-year-old Mark, what advice would you give 25-year-old Mark in today's environment?
1: And 25-year-old Mark was a little crazy, um, but really calm down <laughs> and, and don't worry about a plan. Um, you know, sometimes people get stuck on a specific plan. And, and as we talked about around purpose, you need a path. You don't need to be locked into a plan. And I think when I was 25 years old, it was all about what was I going to do next, you know, and, and building out the career in my brain and things have to fall into place for a reason. And once I realized that it really was about chasing opportunities that you weren't thinking about and that would fall in your lap, I talked about, you know, going to Belgium and being the third choice. If I was too focused on a plan, a specific plan, I never would have done that. And so I think that was a real learning to just calm down and kind of take it as it comes and make sure you're not missing the opportunities, as we mentioned already, in those dark corners. Um, We talked a little bit about diversity and inclusion. I don't think I understood that well enough at 25 years old about the power behind that. Again, as you and I talked about, I think the opportunity to go overseas and experience the different, different cultures helped me. But, you know, even in the recent past, I, I, and today still, I have unconscious biases that I need to explore and expand on. And so really understanding that con- consensus is not the answer and diversity is, um, I think is extremely important. And I think I would tell that person again, don't be so focused, be a little more playful, be a little more curious, um, be a little more brave. Um, so Mark did okay, but Mark could have done a little better. But as you said before, um, I also have no regrets. It's all good. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it is. It's all good. It's all good. Tell me, um, let's talk about some personal stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I love, I love to ask this question because I'm really fascinated. Um, how do you start your day? How do you set your day up for success?
1: Um, you know what? I, the morning is me time. Early in the morning is me time. So I get up early and um, I don't do anything with work. And I do something physical. <laughs> so, and, and I, I also get up in the morning and kind of think about how I feel, what I want to do. So again, it's back to not having some plan that I'm trying to force myself into. Do I feel like I want to ride a stationary bike today? Do I want to go for a walk? Do I want to box? Do I want to do weights? But that morning time when I'm doing that physical activity, I need to kind of get started. And I really don't think about work. Um, I really just you know keep myself present in, in what I'm doing. And kind of just wake up. <laughs> um, so you know that's another thing with this with this remote work. Uh, these seven a.m. calls don't work well for me because I haven't gotten that hour of workout in beforehand, where I kind of clear my mind and just get started for the day. But it is the time that I take for myself, really, just to make sure that I'm physically strong as well as emotionally strong.
0: Yeah, I I agree, and it's uh, that's what I like to do too. I like to I, I walk in the mornings now. That's that's my new thing in the mornings. I really enjoy that. I can't get right into work right away. You've you've got to prepare your mind. You've just got to prepare yourself for the day.
1: Yep. No, I agree. And and to me, it's not really planning what I'm going to do next. It's just clearing up my head, right, and getting ready to go. Because just like we talked with everything, you know something's going to happen during the day that's going to be a complete curveball that you didn't expect it, and you need that clear mind to be able to deal with it in the right way.
0: Tell me about personal accountability. How do you hold yourself accountable? Because we all, we're all human, and we all talk ourselves into and out of things. So any, any tricks, tips or tricks of personal <laughs> accountability?
1: No, and I'll tell you, Jan, too, and I say this on everything. What works in the workplace works at home. In other words, you can't separate the two. So, I mean, anything you do as an individual, you should be doing everywhere. It doesn't matter if you're home, you're at the workplace. But... I, I do think about managing expectations. <laughs> um, I try I, I, I like to take risks and I like to you know push people to do big things or think about things differently. But I also am very careful that I don't create unrealistic you know expectations, either what I say or what I expect of other people, because you have to manage the relationship, manage the day, manage the tactical work product, whatever from the beginning. and the beginning is the expectations. And so I'm always careful in that area. The other thing I'm focused on is if I say I'm going to do something and I don't do it, I follow up. Um, I don't just let it slide. And so I I send, and I know probably a lot of people don't like this, but I, I will send a lot of emails that just say, hey, you know, you and I talked about this. I didn't get to it today. I'm really sorry. I'll get to it tomorrow. And sometimes people say, well, why do you waste your time writing a little email about nothing? And I said, well, that's not nothing because Again, thinking about the person on the other side of that email that maybe expected they needed to do something for me today or they were expecting something from me and they had to do something else themselves, they're going to sit there and wonder. And and wonder creates anxiety and anxiety creates pressure. And so if I just drop them a little note and say, hey, sorry, I didn't do this. I'm going to do it tomorrow. I think that helps. But in today's day and age, especially at the leadership level, people think they have the right not to follow up. Or not to let that person above or below them know that something's not coming today. And that's always really helped me. And, I've, you know, a lot of people had said, Mark, you didn't have to do that. But I know when they say that, they mean, thank you for that. Because that helped me know what was happening. I didn't have to sit there and try and guess. And so I think those are two important tools that I use for myself.
0: Yes, I love that. And I think you are absolutely right. And, and it goes back to who you are as a person. and and a leader and your values, you know, and you truly value relationships with people and you respect people. And when you respect people, it doesn't matter what what title they have or who they are. That, that to me, what you just described is a mark of respect to another human being.
1: That's absolutely, you know, I, um, we celebrated last year, or I guess it was two years ago. So it was pre COVID. Um, one of the leaders within GM financial, just, this is a little personal story I'll tell. And, um, you know, I, I I got up and roasted them and got to say something positive about them. When you talk about how you treat people as individuals and values, I said, "Hey, we were in this conference together, and we had a ten-minute break, and all of us are running into the bathroom and running out. And you know what this person did? They were into the bathroom. Someone was in there cleaning the bathroom. They took the time to stop and ask that individual how their day was. You know, they were there cleaning the sink or they were cleaning the floors. Hey, how are you today? I hope your day is going well. And you know, that's." Oh my gosh, you talk about personal connections and thinking about others and and making an impact. Those little things are so powerful. And that person that was in there cleaning the bathroom, as I walked out, I turned around and, and the individual had a smile on their face because someone had taken the time to ask them about how they were doing. And you know what? They meant it. They meant the question. And it was just a wonderful lesson for me. And again, it goes back to just treating. It doesn't matter if you're treating, it's the janitor or it's the CEO or it's someone on the street. They're human and you need to treat them like they're human. And there's so much value because what you give, you get.
0: And that is a perfect way to end our time together today. Mark Boll, you clearly are a servant leader. You live your and lead in line with your values. And it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you.
1: No, thank you, Jan. And keep changing the world. I'm counting on
0: you. (laughs) I'm doing it, my friend. I'm doing it. All right, Good stuff. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Thanks, Jan. Thank you for listening to the Automotive Leaders Podcast. Click the listen link in the show notes to subscribe for free on your platform of choice. And don't forget to download the 21 Traits of Authentic Leadership PDF by clicking on the link below. And remember, stay true to yourself, be you, and lead with gravitas, the hallmark of authentic leadership.